0: Okay, let's talk a little bit about angels. Uh, these are uh, the type of thing that we're going to be doing for the next uh, about five weeks. Um, I wouldn't say that I don't enjoy it. I do enjoy it. I enjoy all study and all preaching. It's not my preferred thing because I like to preach through books of the Bible and uh, the reason is is because I know the uh, I, I know the draw of something like a conversation about angels I know that if you ask people in a Sunday school class hey what do you want to study they're always going to say revelation not because they really want to know the book of revelation but because they want to um, make up as much stuff along the way as possible uh, then we we'll to talk about the end times not because you know and no one wants to no one's satisfied when you say well the, the, we don't know that we always end up in conjecture and so when we talk about angels and we're going to talk about demons I just want you to understand something we're not going to do any conjecture Okay, this is not conjecture that's not what I'm ever going to do this study is not to have fun or to tantalize our imagination, or even simply gain information. What we want to do is we want to talk about what does the Bible say about angels, and we want to do so in a way that is is right and good in God's eyes according to what He told us. And then we want to do it in such a way as where it will be practical to help you. That... We don't just want to learn something for the sake of learning it. We want to learn it for good, right? And angels is a study that will greatly help you in your spiritual lives if we let it. So that's what we want to do, okay? This study is for us to realize the war that rages. What's at stake and take our place as soldiers in the battle to take the gospel to a lost and dying world. Angels don't exist for our amusement. They don't exist to, uh, for our you know, to amaze us and wow us with the things that they can do and and the way that they do things. They have a very specific purpose, and it is very much linked to our purpose, and is very profitable and beneficial for us to embrace this and say God how can this information help me so number one there is a spiritual world there is a spiritual world there is more in this world that you cannot see than what you can see do you believe that it's not that there's a world that you can't see. It's that there's more of a world that you can't see than what you can see. I'll evidence that by referencing uh, a story that will no doubt come up in the, in the coming weeks. But in 2 Kings chapter 6, a very famous place where the king of Israel is at war. Jehoram is, at, is, is in a battle with Syria. And before, you know, this is the story where Elisha's servant is scared because he sees the Syrians have them surrounded and Elisha prays and his eyes are opened and he sees all of these angels surrounding him. And everybody who's familiar with the Bible knows that story and has heard, there's Paul, raise your hand if you need a handout and he'll come to you. And everybody knows this story. But what is this story really trying to show us? Okay, Let me give you some context. Okay, I'll put these verses up on the screen for you. These are the preceding verses to what you have on your handout. And so the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. What thing? Because the king of Israel somehow knew every move he was going to make before he made it. And so he was very distraught. How does he always know this? And so he says, will you not show me... Who of us is for the king of Israel? Who's the traitor? Who's the snitch? Who's telling everything that I'm thinking? And one of his servants says, No, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he tells him, Listen, there's a man who's a prophet who knows what you're saying and who tells Jehoram everything that you say. So... The king of Syria says, Go and see where he is, that I may send and get him. I never understand why when I read that verse, everyone doesn't crack up laughing. Don't you see how stupid that is? If, the, if he knows everything you say, and then the next thing you do is go, Okay, then go get him. He just heard that. I, don't, I think it's hilarious. And so it was told to him, saying, Surely he is in Dothan, not Alabama. Verse 14. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. That's the context, okay, for what you have. 2 Kings 6.15. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and he went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And so he answered... Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and chariots of fire all around Elisha. In other words, he was surrounded, he could see with his physical eyes this great army. But was there more that he could not see? Clearly, far more. There's always more that you can't see than what you can see. Always more. It's not just that there's a few things or a little bit of things. No, there's more things. Remember, Satan is a fallen angel. And when Satan rebelled against God, he took a contingency of angels with him. And what was the contingency? One-third of the angels went with Satan, right? Which means how many stayed faithful to God? Two-thirds. Which means there are twice as many angels actively working for good than there are those that are working to do evil. So we need to remember that. A lot of times, I think what happens is, is that we overlook sort of the things that God's trying to show us in these passages where angels appear. And we would fall into the trap of uh, oftentimes giving evil way too much credit. Making it way too powerful and way too prevalent when good is twice as prevalent and infinitely more powerful. Okay, so what happens? Verse 18. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness, is verse 18. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elijah. Now... So, the peop- so when the, the army comes down, he just wanted him to know that there was a vast army of angels there. He just wanted him to know that. What, did the angels slay all the Syrians? No. They were just there. And so he was comforted by that. And then Elisha prays, and they're all blind. And then what does he do? If you kept reading, what you would find is Elisha leads this huge army of blind soldiers. He goes out to them and he says, Listen, fellas, I'm not the man that you're seeking, but I'm going to take you to the man that, you're, that you are seeking. And then he leads them to the king of Syria, which, by the way, is a 10-mile hike. So imagine an army of blind soldiers, like all holding on to the guy in front of laugh, left, left, right, right a little, bit. watch the cliff, okay, for 10 miles... And Elisha just keeps on, come on, I'm taking you. I mean, I'm just telling you, if suddenly I'm blind, I'm not trusting the first guy that walks up. I'm just telling you. So they follow him all the way to the king of Israel. It's just crazy. Okay, so there's multiple pictures here that we need to see. This is more than just going, oh, look, angels. First, we are the servant of Elisha. Because our sight is so limited. We live our lives looking out a window going, oh, look at the enemy surrounding us so oftentimes, And so we should realize that we miss so much. And like the servant because this was a life changing moment for him. If our eyes were fully or truly opened, everything about the way we live, our priorities, our passions and purposes would drastically change. Which is what I hope happens tonight. Is that God would open our eyes to begin to see what's really going on around us and it would drastically change the way that we live. So that's the first thing is that we're like the servant with greatly limited sight. Not because it has to be, but we'll get into this shortly. Now, the second picture is, is that we're also God's soldiers. And we've been supernaturally gifted and called to bring blind people to the king. Right? Yes. Yes. So we're not just soldiers for the sake of being soldiers. We're soldiers in an army that has a specific directive. We have a commander who has given us orders, and we have a a mission to accomplish. And our mission is to bring blind people to the king, just like Elisha did, right? We should be leading people there. But what ends up so oftentimes happening is that we inadvertently lead people Away from the king. Away from the king. Because we're unaware of the significance or the ramifications of the things that are going on around us. Listen, limited sight is going to... One of the biggest takeaways from all of my time studying angels over the past month and a half has been how much limited sight costs us. So much, so much it's we underestimate the destruction that is caused by our blindness. So I thought about all of the ways that we inadvertently lead people away from the king and the list just kept growing and growing and growing. and I thought about this example I have Seen over the years, traveling all over the world doing mission work. So much devastation that has been caused not because of uh, sin or rebellion, or but been caused by missionaries. Missionaries who have gone into places and completely messed everything up because a lot of churches even still today ignore what the bible teaches about mission work ignore everything we've been learning in the book of acts and send people to all sorts of random places with no accountability no training no and just send them there and it invariably ends up in disaster and so for example i've been in third world countries where people were were starving ...and unable to feed themselves because they just are unable to feed themselves for a myriad of reasons. And so what happens is, is that you get there and you realize that missionaries showed up and said... "Hey." Here's the problem. The reason you can't feed yourself is because you don't know what you're doing. What you need to do is you need to till the ground this way and you need to do this and you need to get this kind of fertilizer and mix this with this and put this on that and it'll make this grow. And if, and if, something, if, if this happens, then put this fungicide on it and food will grow. And so... The people think that what makes food grow is science. Science doesn't make food grow. God makes food grow. And we never... I mean, why would you... Why would you take an opportunity to teach somebody that the God of the universe created the world to sustain and to feed the inhabitants of his creation and that God miraculously lets food grow up out of the ground? He's the one behind the produce of the world. God does that. Doesn't the Bible say that? In Romans chapter 1, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly perceived. They're clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been what? Made. Science doesn't do that. And if science helps us do that, the only reason we know that is because God enabled us to learn that. You see, it, come, it just comes back to Jesus. And think about all of the ways... In our lives where we inadvertently point people to things other than Jesus. Because we're not paying attention. Because we don't realize the ramifications of the moment. We don't realize that God's put this person in our path. And so we have a conversation about our hobbies or about our life or about our this or about our that. Or whatever it is. And we're not telling people that the reason behind everything good is Jesus. Food grows out of the ground to bear witness of God. That's what the Bible says. So, there's a spiritual world, and we need to be conscious of that world. Number two, there's a spiritual war. In this spiritual world is a raging war. There is a real battle raging for the real souls of men, women, boys and girls all over this world every minute of every day. It never ends. It is continuous. And so whatever you are doing, whether you're watching the news or whether you're sitting in, a, at, in your office at work looking out the window at a people moving about in a park or whether you're walking up and down the aisles in walmart you should be aware that there is a spiritual war raging and that at the center of this war are the souls of the people that are around you that you're seeing and the reason that things are happening the way they're happening and the reason that's driving all of this chaos around us is this war The Bible says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, I don't think there's anyone in here that doesn't know this passage of Scripture. But these powers and principalities, rulers of darkness of the present age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. But do you really believe Ephesians 6? Do you really believe that? Can you honestly say tonight that you absolutely believe in the depths of your heart that we do not war against flesh and blood? Because if you do, then I know something about you. Because there is something that, will, that is invariably a part of a person's life who truly believes this, and I think that people who truly believe this are rare. Because if you actually believe this, then you would know that people are never your enemy. Do you know that? Now I want you to think of the last time you got really mad. The last time somebody really wounded you, hurt you, disappointed you, stabbed you in the back, let you down. Deceived you? Stole from you? Fill in the blank. Did you believe Ephesians 6? Or was all of your anger and all of your emotion and everything directed straight at that person? See, the Bible says you don't, you're, not, you're not battling against flesh and blood. If you believe that, then you know, I don't have to tell you. You already know people are never your enemy. Never. Behind every person who wounds you and hurts you and stabs you in the back is a a spiritual force at work against you and everything that seeks to honor God. Now, I'm not telling you that you ought to run up and hug the people who are willingly allowing the forces of evil to use them to perpetrate harm against you. But you wouldn't be wrapped up in people if you knew that. They're not, it's not people. Listen. The last ten people that attacked you in whatever way that was. Ten different people. The last ten people that attacked you. You only have one enemy. It's just ten different vehicles to get to you. You understand that? You have to be able to separate and realize. It's not the face that you can see with your physical eyes. It's the face behind that face. People are not your primary enemy. They never have been and they never will be. But you look around and what you see is a world filled with people that claim to be Christians and claim to believe this and they're completely wrapped up in the flesh and the blood as if there's no spiritual war going on at all. Now let me tell you some things about this war. The stakes of this war are higher than any other war that's ever been waged. There's no war that even comes close to what's at stake in this war. In... in The ferociousness with which it is fought doesn't compare to any human war that's ever been fought. To the casualties, to the consequences, to the you name it, all of it, A to Z. As horrific of human wars that have been fought on this earth, nothing even comes close to this war. This is a war of two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And the Bible goes out of its way to make sure that we know that. This isn't some obscure thing. Second Corinthians chapter 4, for the God of this world is blind to the minds of unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. You see that? John 18 36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, now remember what I said about Ephesians 6? Here's Jesus telling you exactly what I just said about people not being your enemy and not being wrapped up in flesh and blood. Jesus saw the difference. He said, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered into the Jews. But they don't. You know why? Because they get this principle. Ephesians chapter 2. And you He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So don't get wrapped up in the sons of disobedience. Get wrapped up in the Spirit that's working in the sons of disobedience. You with me? Revelation chapter 11. All of these verses are familiar. You just got to read them with the right sensibility. Then the seventh angel sounded and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. You see this kingdoms and what ultimately happens? Now, what's at the center of this raging war? We are. We are at the center of this raging war. Remember, in, back in Hebrews chapter 12, when we were going through the book of Hebrews, and a very fascinating passage in 12:4, "In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding of blood, shedding your blood?" Hmm. We're at the center of this war, and the outcome of this war is irreversible. It's irreversible. It's set in stone. The die has been cast. The future has been sealed. There's no, um, there's no debate. There's no uh, there's no possibility of uh, you know some surprise ending or some you no, know, it's all it's all been done past tense over. But it still rages today even though the outcome is sealed. Now, look, Satan has been defeated. Defeated. Remember back from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord said, well, He will crush your head and you will strike His heel. Colossians chapter 2, look at the way the Bible describes, having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them all, triumphing over them at the cross. Them, all of them. He made a spectacle of them. On Calvary, when Jesus hung on the cross, what could be seen with human eyes pales in comparison to what happened in that moment that could not be seen. Pales in comparison. Do you see? The victory, the overwhelming victory. I mean, listen, with human eyes, you could see Jesus hanging on the cross. You could see his blood running from his veins. You could see and feel the, the, the sky turn black and the earthquake. And you could see the, the veil rip. And there, But that's just a smidgen of what happened. In that moment... There was the disarming and the humiliation of powers and authorities that we can't see. And because their sentence and their final judgment is yet to come, what do you think? They all ran away scared and it only infuriated it more. It only increased their, you know, their desperation more. Evil, Evil rages and fights against us like I I remember right after me and Lisa got married um, we moved and so I had this cat that like I found in my truck one of my beach trucks and so this cat kind of stayed around, but this cat was like totally wild, feral cat, but it stayed around the house and it kind of became our pet, even though you couldn't touch the cat because it would kill you, and so we were moving, and like, what are we going to do with this cat, and uh, you know, like if you were sitting still, the cat would come up and rub you, but you better not rub the cat, you understand, that would be a big mistake, so we're moving, So the the dumb cat, we're moving, and the dumb cat runs in the house. And so Lisa's like, you got to get the cat out of the house. Now, I mean, I'm young, early, you know, just got married. See, this would never happen today. There would just be a dead cat today. It would just be instantaneously dead. But, you know, I was young and dumb. And so I go in there, and I'm like, I'm going to grab this cat. So I backed the cat in the corner. You know the scenario here? Well, I grabbed the cat, all right, and I spent the night in the ER with a hand. My hand looked like a baseball glove. That cat annihilated me. So now, here's the thing. is you think the cat is looking at me going, oh, yeah, I can take him. The cat knows it's going to lose, which it did lose. Well, actually, I lost. But the cat lost. I got the stupid cat. And the cat can't beat me. But when you back it in the corner, guess what that sucker's going to do? It's going to fight with everything it's got. Well, that's what evil did after Calvary. Okay? Now, so he's defeated and he's destroyed. He will be destroyed. That day is coming. Revelation chapter 20 And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown and will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So that day is coming and the devil knows Scripture and knows that that Scripture is there. Therefore, we should... Why do I tell you all that? Because that's new information? No. Because all of this is to give you a context in how do we respond to this? How do we fight? So we should understand, therefore, that we do not fight for victory, but from victory. You see, we should should battle from the standpoint of victory. To be effective soldiers in this war, as we've been called to be, to effectively serve our commanding officer in this battle... We need to fight from the standpoint of already being victorious. If you start trying to fight for victory, you're going to get all tangled up. Because what happens when you start fighting for victory? What happens to the person, because maybe you don't understand what I'm saying, what happens to the person who fights for victory when, when there's a, a sequence of difficult times you know you get kicked in the teeth a couple times you end up in the er with a hand the size of a baseball glove if you're fighting for victory you start thinking you know what i'm never going to win this and you quit but what about a soldier who's fighting from victory bring it on and if I have 10 bad days in a row or 10 bad weeks or 10 bad months or 10 tough years, I still know I won and I get up every day and fight because I'm fighting from, not for. There's a huge difference, a huge difference. People who fight for victory will never be successful. You know why? Because as soon as it gets hard, they're going to quit. First John 5 or 1 John 4, 4. You dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. 1 John 5, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Now, don't you think the Bible is telling us that so that we will not fight for victory but from victory? Why else would you? You see... The difference is between a coach telling a team, all right, we're going to go out there, we're going to give our best, and we're going to do everything we can to win this game, which would be really easy to lose heart in the course of that, or the coach saying, look, let me let you in on something. We've already won the game. So we're going to go out there and fight, but even if we get down by 10 touchdowns, it's okay. We win the game. So there's a war. It's a spiritual world, a spiritual war, and in it there are spiritual beings, which would be what we'll talk about for the next several weeks. Spiritual beings. So let's talk about angels. See, all of that was just to get us to where we could talk about angels. These spiritual beings are without physical body. They're spiritual without physical bodies. Now, if you had a list in front of you of what are the most frequent topics that appear in Scripture, you would be astonished to find that many of the things you would guess would be on that list, angels are ahead of them. Angels are mentioned nearly 300 times in Scripture. There's not a lot of things mentioned 300 times in Scripture. Not a lot of things. And so in the course of those 300 times in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're called... ...sometimes they're angels, sometimes they're messengers, sometimes they're holy ones, sometimes they're ministering spirits... ...but they're angels and they're showing up all the time, these spiritual beings. Now, they are created spiritual beings. Created. We know this because the Bible tells us this in a number of different places... Namely, Psalm 148 that I put there says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise the Lord from the heights above. Praise Him, all angels. Praise Him, all heavenly hosts. And then at the end it says, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. They're created. All of them are created. Now, angels have attributes just like we do. They, are, they have moral capacities. Moral capacities. Second Peter 2 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, hmm, so what did they do? They made a moral choice to sin. They have volition. They have free will. And they have the moral capacity to choose good and evil because they sinned. They also have intellectual capacities. 1 Peter 1. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So the angels peer down at what happens on earth and they're astonished by that. They're astonished by the fact that Fallen creatures like us can be redeemed by the gospel. The gospel amazes them. Amazes them. They still haven't got over Calvary. That's still blowing their mind. And they have intellectual capacities. They also have emotional capacities. In Job 38, we see that the angels shouted for joy. Now listen, in order to shout for joy, you have to be able to feel joy, right? You can't shout for joy if you can't feel joy. Joy is an emotion, is it not? Yes. Luke chapter 15, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels. Why? Because a sinner repented. They're happy. Psalm 103.20 talks about how powerful these spiritual beings are. Praise the Lord, you His angels, you mighty ones who do His bidding Who obey his word. So the angels who didn't rebel with Satan do his bidding and obey his word. Another passage of scripture that will no doubt come up is 2 Kings chapter 19. It's not in your handout, but you're familiar with this passage. I've referenced it multiple times in the past. This is the passage where King Hezekiah is having trouble with the Assyrians. Now, I bring this up because I, I, I brought 2 Kings chapter 6 up earlier. I want you to see the similarity to what's going on. Now we have not the Syrians but the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are coming against King Hezekiah. And so here's what the Bible says. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. So the prophet Isaiah shows up and starts prophesying to the king... What God says and here's what it says he says well he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast a cast up a a siege mount against it by the way that he came by the by the same he shall return and he shall not come into the city now the Assyrians are a formidable enemy and God says that they will not enter the city, declares the Lord. And then he says, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. That's what God says. The next verse says, and that night an angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000. Assyrians, not a legion of angels, not a delegation of angels, not a myriad of angels. One single angel killed 185 Assyrians. And when the people arose in the morning, behold, all they saw was dead bodies. That's power. And remember, with Elisha, it was all these people surrounding Israel. They're going to attack. And God has all these angels there. Now we have the Assyrians coming against Hezekiah. And the angel of the Lord goes out and kills 185,000 people. So you're starting to get a, a pattern here. That there's a a high prevalence of angels when God's people are under attack, right? And he says that he's going to do this for his own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And all of this is in response to what happened all the way at the beginning of the story back in verse 19 where King Hezekiah prays, and here's what he prays. O Lord our God, save us please from His hand. That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. So I don't want you to just know that there's a really good possibility that there's angels involved when God's people are under attack. But I want you to hear that and know that, and it spur in your heart a sense of saying, That's why I'm committed to prayer right there. He prayed a simple prayer. And look at what happened. Look at God's willingness. Look at His resources. Look at His... And and here's the thing. This is all recorded in Scripture so that we would see this and know this. Now, angels not only have, you know, volition and emotional capacities and moral capacities, but... They're limited in knowledge. They don't know everything. They only know what they've been told. Remember Jesus talking about His return in Mark chapter 13. He says, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven. They don't know. They're not all knowing. There's a lot of things they don't know. There's a lot of things they do know. They obviously know a lot of things. We don't know why. Because they have access to things we don't have access to. Trust me, when you're in the presence of God, you'll instantly know a lot of things you don't know right now, right? But they don't know everything. So they're not, they're not like God. They're more like us than they are like God. You know, they're like God in the sense that we're like God. Put it that way. They're not only limited in knowledge, but they're they remain unmarried, okay? So here's the thing. they don't. Angels don't reproduce. Jesus replied in Matthew chapter 22. He said, you're an error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry or be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. They will be like angels in heaven. That doesn't mean that angels aren't male or female. It just means that they don't reproduce. They're also immortal, immortal. Luke chapter 20, Jesus said, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are, who are considered worthy in taking part of the age that is in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry or be given in marriage, and they will also no longer die, for they are like the angels. They're immortal. They appear... in a physical way they're spiritual beings but they obviously many times in scripture appear in a physical way when they appeared to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 it's in a physical way they would, when they were angels at the tomb of Jesus they saw men dressed in white so they can appear in a physical way but that's just one of the myriad of ways that they, they can do a lot of things they're not hindered by a mortal body a physical body. It doesn't hinder them like it hinders us. And they appear in dreams and visions. We'll probably have some good conversation about this in the weeks to come. Uh, right now there's a lot of people in the Muslim world that are coming to faith in Jesus. And a lot of it is, comes through visions and dreams that they have where Jesus even appears in the dream. Or angels do this or that. But It's different. And here's what I mean by different. So angels are image bearers because there's a lot of things in this list that, are, that we have, right? We have intellectual capacities. We have moral capacities. We have volition and free will, right? We, they're, so the things that we have because we bear the image of God, they have a lot of those things. I mean, we're, we are created. We have moral capacities, intellectual, emotional we, we were created and intended to be immortal, right? It's the wages of sin that cause death. Apart from that, we were, right? And we will, our soul is immortal. So there's similarities. So here's what we're going to see. We're going to see as we move through this, that there are these broad categories in which they function. Angels function as worshipers, witnesses, and warriors. Worshippers, witnesses, and warriors. Now, this is where we got to start thinking. What should stand out to you right now is that everything that I've said ought to be sort of causing you to think, hmm. It seems like God created a spiritual world that mimics the physical world. Because it does. The spiritual world mimics the physical world. Let me show you. Angels exist for the same reason we exist, which is to exalt and worship our God while working to advance His kingdom. You see? So the question that we must ask tonight is, why? Why? I don't want to know a bunch of information about angels unless I I understand why. Why is that so? And what did God intend for me, knowing that, to change? What good is it? Why Why did He create the way He created Why did He create us? Why is it that angels and us have all of these things in common? Why? We're talking about a God so creative that He makes 6 billion people and no two are alike. And yet He makes a spiritual world that looks a whole lot like the physical world. Now why? He must have had a purpose in that. It wasn't like God was up there scratching His head saying... You know, I just kind of ran out with ideas. I just ran out of ideas. I didn't know what else to do. No, he was very intentional in what he was doing. Everything about creation was intentional. When he created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, he put them in a perfect environment where they had perfect fellowship with him. Right? And what did he put in the garden? A tree. Why did he put the tree in the garden? Why not just make the garden without a tree? Why? Well, what is the intention of the tree? Did he put the tree there because he wanted us to fall into sin? No. He put the tree there to show us what his highest priorities are. The tree is a symbol of the fact that God, more than anything else, wants an intimate relationship with you and me. Because apart from the tree, there's no intimacy. Because intimacy cannot be forced. And so in order for there to be intimacy, see, I can't make you love anyone. In fact, is there a verse in the Bible that commands you, that tells you you must love God? No. You have a choice. You don't have to love God. You cannot love God. Which is the only way there can be intimacy. You see, the only way that my wife knows that I love her more than everyone else because I married her, not anyone else. If I had no other choice but to marry her, well then, right? There has to be a tree or there can't be intimacy, which ought to tell you something because look at all the headache that the tree has caused God. It hasn't caused you and me near the headache. It's caused God, but His price for intimacy. He was willing to pay the highest price for intimacy, so the trees there as a symbol of what matters ultimately to God. So then when he creates the spiritual world, why does he do that? If you grew up in church, then you probably grew up singing songs and watching Christmas plays and hearing passing comments about angels that would lead you to believe that angels are just messengers that just show up and they just say whatever God told them to say. God said, go down there and tell them this, this, and this. And so they show up and they go down there and they do that. Because that's the way most people perceive angels and that's wrong. That's wrong. Because if God wanted... If, if all God wanted to do was create an army of messengers, He would have never given them free will. Because if all you want is messengers, then what you want is robots. And the way to get robots is to take away free will. And then you only have robots. Amen? Right? Are you with me? Have I lost you? Are you tracking? Okay. So, you got angels that have free will, so they're not just robotic messengers. So, why does he create them that way? Why would you make angels with a choice? Well, what are angels doing? Well, they're doing a lot of things. But what is the one thing that we know they're doing all the time, every single moment of every day? There are angels around the throne of God, and what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy. Is that right? Now you got it? If angels didn't have a choice... Holy, holy, holy wouldn't mean anything. If you have a gun to your head and you're like, holy, 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 who cares? They're not saying holy, holy, holy because they have to. They're saying holy, holy, holy because it's true. You understand? It's true. It's mimicking the physical world. These two creations go hand in hand. God will not accept disingenuous worship in the physical world or in the spiritual world. There will be no angel half-heartedly saying holy, holy, holy. Just like he says in the Bible That with your mouth, you're singing praise songs, but your heart is far from Him. Therefore, He's not listening to anything you say. Right? He will not accept disingenuous worship. He's a God of authentic worship in heaven and on earth. He's consistent in what He does. And now you're starting to see things. You're starting to see that what angels do is they teach us about God. And the more we know about God, the more we know how to relate to God, how to live for God, how to respond to God, how to wake up every day as His people. See, when we understand the mission of angels, we better understand God's sovereign control of the universe and of our lives. You see, it begins to open up and expand our our understanding of, wait a second, There's a lot more going on tomorrow than just you getting up and going through your Monday routine. I'm not just saying that. I mean that. How do I know that? I know that because I know the God of the Bible based on what the God of the Bible tells me in the Bible about Him, which is namely what His priorities are. You see, the more we understand about the spiritual world, the more we understand about the physical world. The more sense things begin to make around us. And then we begin to realize the things that actually really matter to God more than other things. And so we begin to live according to the priorities of God. Which, for example, what we've talked about tonight tells us that God's priority in the world Is not you and me going to heaven. So we ought to never live like his priority is us getting to heaven because that is not his priority. Because if his priority was me and you getting to heaven, you know where we'd be right now? Exactly. So we're not there, so it's not his priority. It is his foregone conclusion that all of his children will be with him, but it's not his priority. It's not his priority. What's his priority? What is the reason that we're not in heaven right now? We're not in heaven right now because with every day that passes that he waits to come and get us is another day of opportunity for lost people, for blind people to be led to the king, right? And so what you need to realize is that when you wake up tomorrow morning and you open your eyes, you're gonna open your eyes in a filthy, horrible, disgusting world where little girls are being raped and abused and boys are being done the same thing and people are murdered and taken advantage of and there's untold atrocities and terrible suffering going on all over the world. And all of those things are terrible, but they're not nearly as terrible to you and me as they are to the person who created those people in his image, and is allowing all of that to happen because if he wanted it to end tomorrow, he would, listen to me, there'd be a trumpet sound, the sky would crack open, bam, it's over. There's no more suffering. There's no more tears. There's no more nonsense. It's over. But he doesn't do that because he waits, because he gives opportunity for lost blind people to be led to the king. And so when you wake up in the morning filled with all these horrible things, you need to understand that there's a spiritual war going on and what God cares about more than anything else are the souls of people. And if that's what He cares about the most, then what do you think He's dispatching the myriads, the 10,000 times 10,000 angels? What is He dispatching them to do on earth? Entertain us? Nope. They're messengers and warriors to accomplish His will and purpose, which is the salvation of souls and the furtherance of His kingdom and the pushing back of darkness. And so we, don't, we shouldn't be getting mixed up in a bunch of things that don't lead to that. Amen. We're AWOL soldiers if we're not doing that. You might be doing something good, but it's the wrong thing. God, above all things, in this unbelievable, unconscionable, supernatural grief that God feels as He waits, and every moment He's already won, He's already paid the price, all He's got to do is hit the button and it ends. But if He does that, the door slams shut. So what do you think the most common activity of angels is on earth? It has to do with leading blind people to the king. Because what can angels not do that me and you can do? Remember in the study of Acts when we talked about Cornelius? And the angel comes to Cornelius and says, Cornelius, all of your prayers... Have gone up to God. God knows you. He loves you. He he wants to save you. So send men to Joppa to go get Peter. Huh? Why didn't the angel just say, Cornelius, repent of your sin and ask Jesus to save you? Because angels can't bear witness of salvation. Only me and you can. So what are angels busy doing? Because they're not witnessing for salvation. They can show they can be a witness that God is real but not of salvation. That's, that is strictly relegated to me and you. How many people do you think have come across your path in the last month that you met, bumped into, had an exchange with, got to know, stood by in line? How many of those people do you think were led there by an angel? By spiritual powers working to bring them into your path and you missed it. You just thought it was somebody standing in front of you or behind you or sat next to you. or No. How do you think, when I stand up here and say week after week, do you think the people who move in across the street from you just happen to be there? Do you think when we spend all those weeks talking about the book of Esther and how nothing is just some random coincidence, how do you think all of those things are accomplished? What percentage of those things do you not think that angels are involved in? If that's God's highest priority, then don't you think that that's the central thing He's dispatching them to do? And we just miss it. Because we're focused on what we can see with our physical eyes. We're busy. We're late. We're in too much of a hurry. We got other things, other problems, other this, other that. And we're missing what's going on right in front of us. The war rages. And at the center of the war is me and you. We're the weapons that God uses for good. It's not a war over geographical boundaries and borders. It's a war over souls of people. So the question we ought to ask ourselves is not are angels real, but is God real in my life? I mean, do I really... Walk with God according to what the Bible teaches me about God? Am I living my life as if the Bible is telling me these things for a purpose and a reason? May it be that what we take away from this time together tonight is a greater understanding of the God that we serve and of the reality that is all around us that we can't see and the urgency of what is at stake. And let's make no mistake about it. The goal in this life is not to try to be a good person. It's not to try to do good things. It's not to good you fill in the blank. The goal in this life for me and you is to be a good soldier. You understand that? Amen. To be a good soldier. Anything less than that is a fail. It's to be a good soldier. It's to fight the good fight. It's to run the race that's set before us. This is the race set before us. Those angels that are around the throne of God declaring holy, holy, holy. Now remember, every time an angel... Shows up and does something. Whether we realize it or not. When we read it in scripture. But there's angelic activity in your life. And when it is and when it happens. Understand that angel. Is doing what. He's been commanded to do. Because he loves the commander. And a person that doesn't do what they've been commanded to do has a love problem for the commander. And one last thought before we finish. So those angels that are declaring holy, holy, holy. When we get there, when we die, when we go to heaven, when we're face to face with God. I don't think that what we'll do is declare holy, holy, holy. I think we will say that. But I think there'll be a difference between what the angels say and what we say. I think we'll say, holy, holy, holy. And then we'll say, grace, grace, grace. You see, angels don't know grace. Only we know grace. And we'll be so overwhelmed at the holiness of God, but the grace of God that we're there and that all that He has done to make that possible. And so let it be our prayer that we would say tonight, God, open my eyes to the spiritual realities all around me and let me see the activity you desire to do in and through me. Let me see, Lord. Let me see how many things you're leveraging right now that I have no idea about. As I prayed about these messages. Just one day in my prayer clause, I just got so overwhelmed with grief. Because as I was praying, I began to just feel like God was just pressing in on my heart. I began to start imagining some of you that would hear this sermon. And the very person right now that you are most annoyed with. Because you're wrapped up in flesh and blood. Is somebody maybe that an angel has worked in their life to bring them to the forefront of your consciousness that you might lead them to the king. You see, sometimes people don't always come into your, your life in an easy way, right? Right? I'm not talking about what Pastor Matt preached about this morning. I'm talking about how people just show up in your life. You ever met anybody and you became friends with them and then somebody said, how'd y'all become friends? And you laugh and go, well, it didn't start so good. When you first met them, they annoyed you or they hurt you or bothered you or disrupted you. or And then you got to know them. It's not flesh and blood. It's powers and principalities are at work all the time. This morning, tonight, if you could see from the moment you got here tonight, from the moment I started preaching, do you there's such intense spiritual warfare in this room. Every time we come in here and gather, there's intense warfare. Raging to distract you, to bother you, to disrupt you. Anything possible. So what do you think happens when you're alone?